Welcome to Rising with the Tide. I'm Skander, as always, joined by Jamie. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, and today we are joined by Kai Heron, lecturer in political ecology at Lancaster University. As it happens, a fellow member of Lancaster University, just like your hosts. And actually, that's where Jamie and I met and fell in love. And, yeah. <laughs> no, just kidding. No, we, we just started a podcast together, a which is episode. Yeah, it's basically the same thing. Um, very similar. <laughs> Kai, how are you? I'm good. Nice to see you both. Uh, podcasting is a very intimate thing, isn't it? Staring at each other every day, <laughs> it having is, conversations yeah. with people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, thank you. It's really good to be here. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's like having a hundred dates online with <laughs> very interesting topics. It's like speed dating. Yeah, but I don't know. We yeah. we should maybe one day just uh, go into some like really fancy studio or something. Just kind of change things up, and I'll just have this every single time in our rooms. It's yeah, a we'll just get a studio. Home. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you'll you'll just you you'll fly in. For every episode. And, yeah, uh, and then go home straight away. Like after. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> All right. Kai, thanks so much for joining in. Um, we Not really, much. really appreciate your, your work. And as I said, you know, coming from Lancaster University, that adds a little something for us to, mm. to the episode because, um, yeah, the podcast itself started as a Lancaster University Extinction Rebellion podcast. It's how Jamie and I kind of, I think, also became more than friends <laughs> and uh it's how we yeah we went on this journey uh, with rising with the tide so it's really great to have you and i want to maybe just kind of start by tell us a little bit about the current state of how you see the uk's agroecological present uh, how have things progressed also i guess in uh since since the days of old yeah yeah Big question, like how has agriculture developed in the United Kingdom? But um, let's start at the beginning. We'll go with you know uh, the famous story of the development of capitalism. Uh, however, you can argue it's happened as a world system, but one of the defining sites of uh, the foundation of capitalism on on a world as a world system was the English countryside, right? So the enclosure of the commons, uh, the development of agriculture as a capitalist industry which enabled the proletarianization of feudal peasants, which were sent into the cities to work in industrial. We all know this story, right? Industrialized and to become proletariats, or they were shipped overseas to colonize other countries, right? So if you're looking at English agriculture, you're looking at one of the birthplaces of capitalism. Uh, let me leap forward a couple of hundred, you know, a couple of centuries, just it gets to the modern day <laughs> and you can still see the kind of elements of that in play. So uh, only about 50% of our food is produced in the UK, although we are a 70% agricultural landscape, right? So massively densely populated uh, in cities, 70% of our land is registered as agricultural, but we're largely reliant on imports for our, our food. Mm -hmm. uh, why is that? Well, it's partly to externalize the cost of producing food, to make food as cheap as possible, to drive down wages for workers in the UK. Cheap wages means more capital, more profit for capital, right? So there's a global food system that's orientated towards keeping food cheap, as Jason Moore and Raj Patel would put it. Um, so that's mm -hmm. the, kind of the background where you can understand what's going on in the UK. On top of that, you need to talk about the exploitation of labor, usually immigrant labor that's flown in uh, seasonally, works in unfree conditions. We can get into that. They're super exploited. They're basically uh, in debt bondage for the season, mm -hmm. and then they go back to their home countries 
hoping that they've earned enough money to pay off their debts and have some money to tide them over to the next season. So it's an extremely exploitative system. Mm-hmm. Within that, there are movements to try and overcome or reimagine uh, food, food systems, uh, broadly speaking. So movements like Land in Our Names, a decolonial black movement to imagine land justice in England and the UK. The Land Workers Alliance, who are attached to La Via Campesina. Uh, and groups like that, it will get all the way around to agroecology. Uh, groups like that try and imagine a different food system, right? Predicated not on um, monocultural industrialized food production, which is primarily what we have in the UK, um, but instead towards agroecological food systems, which uh, tend to be more labor intensive uh, because they don't use fossil fuel inputs, pesticides, fertilizers. Um, but they are also more climate resilient. Uh, they are more biodiverse, so they're better for ecosystems. And they are, um, I'm reluctant to talk about scales as like at a human scale, but they are more, almost more intuitive, right? You could, we can collectively manage and maintain an agroecological system. So they lend themselves more to collective and common forms of control and ownership, democratic participation. Um, Right. So that's that's an opening gambit. I can go on more about subsidy yeah. systems and transitions post Brexit, but that's already enough to get started. I think I uh, just before we move on too far, I think I'd like to ask um, about sort of the nature of ownership of land. So because a lot, like I think most British people would think that the concept of a landed gentry is a thing of the past and it's something that we've we've happily moved on from. But um, what what how do you see um the, the condition of control over land and ownership over land in the UK and how does this how is this sort of a determinant in the mode of food production that you were just describing a moment ago so we have one of the most unequal patterns of land ownership in Europe uh Guy Shrubsoll's book who owns England is the place to go if you're interested in the exact facts and figures of how bad this is um but by and large there are like three primary landowners there's the state itself through like the forestry trust is quite a large landowner. Uh, there are um, banks and um, investment funds who are becoming larger and larger players. Uh, and then the other one is this lingering and stubborn force that will not go away, which is the aristocracy, right? Who, if you're, I mean, I live in Lancaster, as we've said, uh, I'm I'm an avid cyclist and I, I cycle through the forest of Boland, for example, and you, you, you will hit hunting grounds, right? They're aristocratic playpens that are still privatized that we can't walk through. We're not allowed access to them. They're completely closed off. Um, and the aristocracy lingers uh, in part because it's been very good at adapting and, main, and developing uh, as there have been changes in agricultural policy or land policy in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, so my favorite example of this, the one that I'm sure we, we might get into is rewilding. So rewilding has become a very popular thing uh, in the UK and beyond with people like George Monbiot you know, being big proponents of it. But things like the Nepa State, which uh, is one of the most famous rewilding projects, um, Isabella Tree's book about rewildings about the Nepa State. Uh, it is mm. an aristocratic estate, right, that has been used uh, to try and generate revenue, basically, to keep the aristocracy owning their land and having their estates, their country homes. They need income to maintain that land and to maintain their life. And the way they mm. do that is, in this case, rewild, they rewild it. You can go and camp there bring them a revenue stream. They allow fox hunts, the community fox hunt through it, which seems a bit incompatible with a rewilding project, Yeah. Uh, right? But you can trace all of this wealth all the way back 
literally to 1066, the distribute the you know the, the, the collapse of the monasteries, the replacement of a kind of uh, aristocratic land system, and through colonialism and the occupation of Africa, where a lot of uh, Charlie Burroughs family got their money from. Uh, so yeah, aristocracy mm -hmm. are still stubbornly here. They're still yeah. creatively reinventing themselves. Uh, and I so rewilding is my favorite story for that. But uh, before that, the way I think about this is um, a lot of the safari parks in the UK, right, used to be or still are also aristocratic estates. So it was also mm. that, this idea of using their land to generate revenue through whatever it seems to be like, well, we're doing conservation by doing a safari park, or now we're doing conservation through rewilding. It's a greenwashing of aristocratic wealth. To answer Jamie's question, the final bit, so how does it structure it, right? It should be obvious that then if they control a disproportionate amount of the land for the, they are a vanishingly small minority of the population, then this is intrinsically democratic, undemocratic, right? That's, that's the point to get to. How do you create a more just food system in the UK? How do you create a better use of our land? Because we're going to have to think about land not just as small parcels of privately owned land if we're going to solve the climate crisis. We need to think at large scales. That means collective ownership, common control of land. You can't do that if a few, a minority owns the majority mm -hmm. of the land, right? And that's that's kind of the thrust of that critique. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, I I was just going to say that the this rings um, some bells for me with like it reminds me a little bit of uh, Cian Sullivan's work in in Namibia, like the the kind of. I don't know if if it's a fair parallel to make, but the kind of fox hunt on private estates and rewilding, and then kind of that with the Namibia um, hunting as uh, no, sorry, not hunting, um, trophy hunting as like a potential source of income for people in Namibia. It, it seems to very much kind of go against the the ethos and also effectively what that means. Uh, which yeah. is upping numbers of of um of animals in in one one demand one um way um i just wanted to ask about the so rewilding as you said has kind of come into the light a little bit in the media light recently and uh george monbiot yeah has has written quite a lot about this but i i've seen in some of your articles that you've critiqued it more in the way that rewilding would be done under current structures and systems rather than rewilding itself as an idea. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so I guess rewilding, would you say, is more of a, not necessarily a, a good thing in itself, but more shaped by the, the structures that it inhabits? Yes. Yeah. So rewilding, I'm a bit ambivalent about it, but the, I think it has a few profound uh misplaced assumptions right that we need to mm -hmm. be aware of if you're going to think about it so one of those is this idea it's in the name itself and i know that people who are proponents of it are aware of this limitation but it, i can't help but raise it rewilding implies a kind of going back right uh like going back to some idealized state of nature so that has two assumptions that i think are problematic one is that there is this idealized aesthetic yeah. moment that is where we need to go um that's a political choice. And so we should, I think we need to be honest and say there's a political and aesthetic choice being made about where we want to go and that that should be democratically done, not decided by aristocrats or large landowners. So that's one point. The other point is that it, it relies on this, uh, an ontological distinction, so like a hard distinction between uh, society and nature. 
So rewilding is done in one place. We bring back beavers, we bring back whatever important species we need for that ecosystem to function in one place. But then human inhabitation or food production has to happen somewhere else, right? So we get what's called a nature sparing idea of land use. So we spare as much wild nature, wild is kind of in scare quotes, for nature because humans are somehow part, not part of nature, we're separate from nature. Um, and so we need to live somewhere else. And that leads to kind of intensive monocultural farming systems. It leads to large scale cities. Uh, and there are much more interesting, I think, uh, ways of living within and alongside other parts of nature, right? That, yeah, as a political choice, I think is, is preferable, but it also leads to all kinds of important um, into to biodiversity. And it certainly removes this threat. Once you make this vast distinction between nature and society, you can use that in all kinds of political ways yeah, where, yeah. for example, indigenous people are uncivilized. They are not part of nature, right? So they're part of nature, they're not part of society. Mm -hmm, you know, that's mm -hmm. a classic trope or like women's work is considered natural rather than being something that is intrinsically and so on and so on. Right. So anything that buys into those distinctions, I think we should be suspicious of. Yeah. This is something we've, uh, we've heard a lot from Jason Moore, um, yeah. When we we got the chance to, to talk to him, that was yeah, that was uh, really enlightening about about the distinction between society and nature and the creation of nature as an idea as well. Exactly. So there's a complication there for you know those of us who are environmentalists and like the idea of conserving and and cre increasing biodiversity, but it's a way of thinking about. Um, there's a great book that talks about ecological matrices, so patchworks of so land sharing rather than land sparing. The idea is that we could coexist and we have to coexist with the rest of nature. And we can do that by having a kind of patchwork landscape of maybe uh, more wild kind of conservation areas for endangered species. But alongside that, we can have agroecological systems that increase biodiversity that we can be mm -hmm. working in and living near. Um, yeah. So that kind of that's where that's where the struggle is, I think, between land sparing and land sharing in that case. And I guess in contrast to the current uh, sort of exclusive binary understanding of nature, rewilding projects, uh, which are owned and controlled by um, in, in some part the aristocracy or the state. Um, how how would these more sort of. Uh, uh, nature sharing, uh, agroecological type of use of land. How how would that be uh, controlled and sort of, I guess, you know, decisions be made around that? Yeah, great question. I'm just realizing we're missing uh, one part of the picture that I should briefly mention and I'll answer that question, which is that not all rewilding projects are done by aristocrats or by um, large scale land, but, you know, capitalist landowners. There are community rewilding projects. Um, but often there, the, the, the drive is to try and bring in, say, ecotourism or to bring in profits or carbon offsetting schemes because communities are massively underfunded and they need income and revenue. Right. And so uh, this is we're getting down to the contradictions of a capitalist system where everything has to be for profit and commodified. Um, and so we kind of run across those limits. If you really wanted to rewild and rewild in a way that's sustainable, I think you'd have to get outside of the profit motive. Um, mm -hmm which kind of gets me back towards uh, your question of how could things be done differently, right? So I'm going to get my kind of, I kind of joke about this, but my more kind of policy wonk hat on for a second and talk about 
work I've been doing uh, with my co-authors, um, Bertie Russell and Keir Milburn, but there's really a whole cohort of us. Uh, we worked originally with Commonwealth and we're now setting up our own think tank called Abundance. Uh, and the name being, the idea being, uh, it's a point that Jason Hickel makes as well, that capitalism imposes scarcity uh, by privatizing land, for example, and closing land so that we can't get to it. That makes us want to pay, for example, to be able to go and use these community rewilding estates for ecotourism, right? It creates that scarcity mm -hmm. uh, of access. Abundance happens when you have common ownership and collective control. Um, so we try and imagine ways of getting there from where we are. So collective and commonly owned assets and democratic control of those assets. Mm. Uh, so what we're really talking about is transition. And we're thinking about transition in a moment when, in the UK at least, the chances of electing a progressive leader of any kind is just vanishingly small. The chances of getting a party yeah. on side as a whole party that will agree with something like common ownership of a food system is extremely unlikely. But that yeah. doesn't mean that there aren't actors who are maybe in local authorities or in communities who want something like uh, common ownership, common control and a decommodified food system. Um, so our mechanism for this, the one that we're working, that I'm writing a report on at the moment, uh, is a way of reimagining what are called uh, the council farm estates or the county farm estate uh, in the UK and moving towards a system that we call a public common partnership. And I, I, I'll, mm -hmm, I can go into mm -hmm. a lot of detail about that, but I would just say for the moment, it is a mechanism of using uh, publicly owned land, public council farms are publicly owned land, uh, and allowing communities to have a say and control over how they produce food and how they serve the local community, uh, using those sites of public land uh, to experiment with and advance agroecological food production uh, in the UK. So in a way, there's a, a well-known phrase in the literature about using um, spaces as agroecological lighthouses, like they they cast, you know, they keep you on track and help mm. you transition towards an agroecological food system. Um, so we're involved in work with that and trying to imagine alternatives at small scales at first and then imagining that scaling up across a larger landscape. Yeah, I I really would like to, before kind of asking you I guess how we get there, I would really like to kind of delve a little bit deeper into what the ideal agroecological future looks like. And also, you know, what you believe would uh, a realistic uh, agroecological future would look like as well. Because I know sometimes, you know, the ideal and and, and the more uh, realistic steps are, are quite different. Um, can you kind of tell us a little bit in in a way uh almost like narratively i guess how what that life would look like or what those spaces would look like um in that idealistic future or or what you would hope at least to get to i can but i also don't want to and let me explain <laughs> let me okay. explain why okay he just <laughs> said no <laughs> yeah i did but i want to explain why because i think it's important so another piece another Part of my work is trying to imagine and think about transitions, but I'm very attuned to, uh, I, I grew up in movements in the UK around the time when Mark Fisher was very influential with his book mm. of capitalist realism, which you might be familiar with and used to organize with Mark Fisher and people around that community, right? Um, and so he has this phrase that he appropriates from Frederick Jameson where he says, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And we all know this phrase. 
Um, but I, I don't think that's true anymore. And I've said this for a couple of years now. I think we're very good at imagining futures outside of capitalism. So yeah. we there are lots of books like um, Half Earth Socialism is a good example of this. I think various degrowth books have done this mm -hmm. work. Uh, some versions of Green New Deals have also done this work of, if you like, starting from where we are and then projecting into a future to mm -hmm. imagine an idealized state. Right. But and we're really good at that. And I think it's really useful because it gives you something to aim for and desire. Right. But I also think it jumps over the problem of transition, that messy yeah. reality of how you get there. Um, and so for me, you know, there's that phrase communism is the movement that abolishes the present state of things. It's a process. It's always a thing that you're working towards. I mm -hmm. think it is also mm -hmm. a state, the state of affairs. I mean, by that, um, that you do reach and attain. Um, but it's not for me to say how that should look. <laughs> do you see what I mean? Like, yeah. So yeah, 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 and yeah. once I've once I've said that, I can then tell you what I would like. But like, I'm one voice among of course of people on it. <laughs> of course, of course. Yeah, yeah. That's the future is owned by the people of the future. Of course, it's yes. it's not it's not for us to either imagine that future and set it in stone for them. Just like it's not for Marx and Engels to have told us uh, what our our present should look like today. Yeah, so I'm very interested in how uh, our idea of the future changes as we start struggling and thinking towards it. Mm -hmm. The other piece, missing piece of that puzzle is if I traject, make a trajectory of how I imagine the future, this plagues my mind a lot at the moment. If we imagine where we want to be in the future, like 50 years into the future, we people tend to do that imagining that the climactic conditions 50 years in the future are roughly the same as they are now right but every single year the climate is getting worse it's getting less habitable in certain parts of the world by in 50 years from now the predictions of uh internally and externally displaced people because of the effects of climate change is huge right the mm -hmm. world that we have to imagine is going to be so dramatically different it's almost impossible to imagine what it would be like but with all of those caveats done like agroecological future what would it be so uh for me something like uh imagine the kind of uh, a patchwork of uh, cities, but also small towns and villages surrounded and also within them, like food being produced within cities in biodiverse agroecological systems, which means um, no off-farm inputs or minimal off-farm inputs. So no pesticides, synthetic pesticides and fertilizers, no carbon for no fossil fuel use. Uh, this food system would be democratically ran by uh, producers of farming producers, but I also imagine more people would just be involved in growing their food. So if we're talking about the idealized future, we've abolished the division of labor as it currently exists, right? So I don't need to be a lecturer nine to five, uh, seven days a week as it usually tends to be. Uh, but instead, uh, I could spend a certain portion of my day contributing towards local food growing initiatives and so on. I think people will need to be involved in that. Um, and that I can stop doing bullshit work as an intern. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Precisely. Right. So I think you can, I, that's where I go to. It's like, it's not like there's nature over there and that's the rewilded space. So like we are living in and amongst nature. It's providing food for everybody. Yeah. And before the inevitable question comes up of like, well, agroecology sounds great, but how can it feed the world? There's lots of arguments to that, but, one of them is that it, it's lots of evidence that it can produce the equal amount of calories as industrialized food systems, or maybe a little bit less. 
the little less doesn't matter because the existing food system throws away a third of all of the food that it produces. It is extremely wasteful. It overproduces food. So we can more than feed the world already. Uh, transition towards a more sustainable, ecologically benign or beneficial food system, um, which is closer to us, more in proximity to us, where we would have a say over what is grown. Um, that's that's kind of where I would go on that. Yeah. So this struggle to build up sort of a culture of of, of um, agroecological, I, I don't know, co communes or perhaps you know um, cooperatives or or something along those lines, and um, or or you know or or on the similar scale, a kind of like a, a national project to redistribute ownership over land um, for for those purposes is an immense like political challenge just given how much vested interests are at play here yes. and just i guess how much influence um those who own land the elite who own land uh, have over government um yeah. i wonder if so i guess not not talking about the end state of things necessarily or what society would or should look like but that process of political change i wonder if you have ideas on you know for example like the landless workers movement i, I mean i don't i'm not sure of the exact sort of structure of uh, it, i know it's a very collectivized form of um owning and, and working on land and they do it through sort of occupations as as one example like i wonder sort of what ideas you have um for that political change to take place yeah great question so the first thing to say is it always has to be um appropriate to the material conditions in which you are working and fighting right so we haven't got into it yet but all of my agrarian politics and claims about land use in the global north are predicated on demands from the global south for climate justice and food sovereignty the idea that as long as we're using the lands and labor of the global south to sustain an unsustainable quality of life in the global north this is intrinsically a form of exploitation right that sustains our life um, so then that raises questions for you in the global north about how you fight to listen to those demands and advance demands from the global south. But we can't just borrow everything that, the, that they're doing wholesale. So MST are hugely influential for me. But you're right, they do it through occupations and they do that because there is a written rule in the Brazilian constitution that says if land is not being used productively, then it can be occupied and used for productive purposes. So they kind of manipulate that law to allow them to occupy the land and farm it in common to provide for their collective needs. We do not have a clause like that in our constitution. So if we turned up on, if I went to the forest of Bolam with a couple of mates and just walked onto an aristocrat's land and started doing guerrilla gardening, like they can throw us off very quickly and I have no claim against that. So we need a different strategy. So in the UK, um, Land nationalization is no longer on the political agenda. It was until fairly recent living memory. So after World War I, Labour Party still notionally said that they were in favor of land nationalization. Mm. It was still kind of in their manifesto until after World War II, and then it just disappears. And there's a lot of explanations and arguments for that. Um, but yeah, land nationalization is not on the cards. But I think you can see uh, a bubbling up desire for more democratic control of land in various movements so one of those would be right to roam which for people who aren't in the yeah. uk uh it's a campaign to have in scotland for example you can walk into a field and you can camp freely in that field overnight pack up your stuff 
move on doing a hike across Scotland, for example. In England, you cannot do that. You have no right to camp and you can only go through right of ways, right, through private land. So the idea is that we should be allowed to just go where we want to uh, as long as we, you know, we leave no traces and we're respectful of the land. I think that's a really good move. Uh, it, it harks back to a tradition of struggles in the UK around the kinder scout occupations and walks, which were about reclaiming the right to roam and, and walk around. That disalienates us from the land. It teaches us that we have a right to it, that it's ours to experience and enjoy collectively. Uh, there are limitations to that movement, but you know, I think it's a part of the puzzle. Uh, groups like Lion, I think, are really important, recognizing the politics of land, uh, dispossession of uh specifically racialized people in the uk you know that that's another part of this i think the national uh national trust <laughs> i don't know if you remember this story but the national trust had to do a big investigation into the colonial holdings we're repoliticizing land in lots of interesting ways so i, I think there's an avenue there and a space um to put land politics back on the agenda and then we need to think about the climate crisis and the changes in land use that the climate crisis is requiring. So just this week, there's been a big hoo-ha about how do we build the infrastructure to get renewable energy to the places where uh, it needs to be. Uh, and that infrastructure is going to have to go through communities who are likely to try and block it, right? So this is that's intrinsically a struggle about land and democratic control over infrastructure and land use. So that's raising this question again. Um, and then in my work, the council farm work, I'm trying to play a small part in politicizing council farm estates. They are commonly owned or publicly owned agricultural land that is supposed to be used to allow more people to get into agriculture and farming in the UK. But the local authorities, because of austerity, are rapidly selling off. So there's a new enclosures is the way I think about this, right? An enclosure of publicly owned land that could be used to help us have a transition towards a more sustainable food system. And because of successive policies of both Labour and Conservative governments, we're losing that window of opportunity to do something different with our land. So I'm trying to politicise that space as part of this larger struggle around right to roam, lion, yeah. LWA and so on. Yeah, super interesting. I, I really, yeah, I definitely agree that we're seeing a, a sort of surge in, in rethinking about land. But, but then I'm also struck by... Uh, and at least what's been my experience, I, I don't know if, you know, this is a fact, but my observation that one of the kind of main opponents of um, such rethinking, such more, you know, I guess you can call it radical, but maybe we would call it more uh, uh, righteous. <laughs> yeah, uh, rethinking about land and recentralizing land and agroecology are you know the sort of petit bourgeois like often middle class or higher who don't even benefit from the status quo often or actually are hurt technically by the status quo sometimes they just don't know it they don't realize it why do you think that is that there is such a sort of barrier and that such a, a percentage of the population uh sees no benefit from the current state of things and still seems to defend um the status quo because often of i don't know a sort of uh instinctive reaction to the idea of going into people's uh you know as they call it backyards and, and kind of taking over uh, why do you think that is you know that there's this sort of chunk of the population that there's acts like this 
I mean, it's such it's such a hard question to answer, but I try and give some examples of. I think it depends on the groups you're talking about, but let's say uh, petty bourgeois food producers, right? So petty commodity mm-hmm. producers, as, as I like to call them in the kind of Marxist terminology. So these are people who are maybe tenant farmers or small uh, owner-occupying farmers. They hate the idea of right to roam. Like, and I, <laughs> I, 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 uh, I gave a talk at last year's ORFC, the Oxford Real Farming Conference, and right at the end of it, I mentioned supporting right to roam. And I think just by, I think I kind of had managed to skirt bringing smallhold farmers like those on side with some of these more progressive policies mm-hmm. but the moment i mentioned right to roam i lost them entirely and oh, i was like oh, okay this is good and like <laughs> and you know but i think why i mean complicated reasoning but they come there the rationale for why they're opposed to it is a kind of generalized distrust of the of the public right uh, and mm. that they don't trust that the public aren't going to say walk on their crops or aren't going to leave waste behind them um so I tend to think about that as being um, animated by a series of concerns and issues. I think one of those is a a unfortunate separation between food producers and consumers in our society. So an urban rural divide that generates a a tendency towards distrust. Um, That's one, right? They always feel like besieged by always being blamed for like say polluting the environment we often hear about farming polluting the environment and so on and so they feel besieged and victimized and so they're inherently suspicious of these ideas uh and then the other is that they are landowners or usually mm-hmm. right even of a small scale and uh that means that intrinsically brings in a certain um mindset right a petty bourgeois mindset of what's mm-hmm. mine is mine and i'm scared of losing it mm-hmm. right i think that's basically what happens uh, it's really basic. It's a really basic point, but that's where we get to. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, yeah. I think it's that. I think private property breeds a certain mentality. We live in a society <laughs> that breeds a kind of individualism that's collectively is suspicious, intrinsically <laughs> suspicious of collectivism. Yeah, um, yeah. But just really quick, because I've mentioned this, those arguments, I'm, I'm mm-hmm, trying mm-hmm. to get rid of one of them. This idea that like people are going to come onto your land and leave trash. I think you could just you just need to flip it around. People only trash landscapes or environments or fly tip or whatever it is i deep down believe this when they don't feel like they belong or have a say over that place right so you you don't just throw trash into your own garden you don't throw trash into your house right and you you do that because you feel a sense of control and ownership over that space or whatever ownership might not be the right word but a belonging Right. So by allowing people to have a right to roam and feel like they are responsible for maintaining collectively our land, our landscape, that is how they become less alienated from it and how you stop things like what the, the precisely the thing they're concerned about. Right. So the cause of the problem is actually private property and enclosure and the solution lies in a right to roam. But mm-hmm. the kind of petty commodity mindset of landowners just doesn't see it that way. Right? So so would you say um progressive reform uh, that 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 finally grants people in the in England the right to roam is like a really good effective first step in kind of making a cultural uh, shift towards um thinking more about like nationalizing or collectivizing land in general yes yeah basically i think for for i don't think nationalizing or collectivizing land is on the collective is on the agenda right at, at all and so we need to move towards a space where it is and there are only so many things that we can do as progressive movements and forces to do that there are i think limitations with right to roam um that we can go into i i do think it's a specifically it's still a very white and middle class environmentalist movement mm-hmm. from what i can see of it 
that I find concerning. Um, I think we need to think about creating uh, green spaces and green landscapes and opportunities to engage in non-human nature and urban environments as well, right? Then like, I, that, that work needs to be done. But I think right to roam is one of the pillars that is leading towards a re-questioning of land and agrarian issues in the UK. The other being the green transition, right? It forces yeah. the question of how we change it from a food system that is simply unsustainable or how we move away from a fossil fuel inf infrastructure that's in place to a renewable infrastructure that will need us to change the way land is built and where we build and how we build. Um, and those are barriers that will only be solved by raising the land question again. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's one pillar among many is the way I put it. Yeah, I mean, having, it's it's all uh, fine and dandy to have like uh, this right to roam in, in let's say, uh, I don't know, I guess near like Scotland, for example, and, and areas like this. But if, uh, yeah, racialized minorities in let's say south london have to pay for example exorbitant fees of train to get to it exactly. that, that does create massive uh barriers for anyone who who can't afford you know a 200 pound return ticket uh for a weekend away camping it instantly makes a yeah like you said a, a middle class and up kind of uh thing yeah which doesn't mean that they can't do some effective and wonderful and important things it just means that like of course any movement right it needs to be very careful about and aware of its own limitations i think and work with other movements mm -hmm. yeah yeah i um i do want to quickly get on to a side comment that you made which i i think can kind of lead us down a, a very interesting path for discussion um which is that you said something along the lines of that um the wants and culture of the global north of consumerism uh, as they exist today popularly um are potentially not viable options for the long-term socio-ecological good um so i guess my question is that is how do you view the current culture of consumption and consumerism that we have in the uk in europe in in america and canada and in what's known as the global north can they be exported somehow to the world at large fairly and sustainably? Can everybody live like we live or like at least the sort of, I would say, not poor, not poor classes of the global north live? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so the answer, the short answer is no. Uh, there's all kinds <laughs> of studies and things that do this, right? About like how many earths you would need to sustain the American yeah. way of life for everybody. But I'm not going to go down that route um, because it's it's you, it's fairly debatable in various ways. I would just point out my my move on this is it's not that the global South, uh, quote unquote, developing countries are. I'm sorry if I sound tired <laughs> doing this, like this, I wish we just knew this in our movements and I wouldn't have to have this do this point, but like we, we don't all know this, so it's important. It's not that they're going to develop and reach the same quality of life as we have. It's that the quality of life and development that we have is predicated on what people like Walter Rodney call the underdevelopment of the global south or the periphery, right? That there is a de-developing and a breaking apart of uh, cultures, societies, ways of living in the global south to integrate global south economies and people into the global capitalist economy in a subordinated position to reproduce and serve the quality of life that we live in the global north i think that's simply undebatable on the left right and that raises important questions for us if you're in the global north and about how you think about 
yeah. whatever kind of struggle you want to talk about, whether it's degrowth, whether it's kind of a, an eco-socialist project, this dependency theory approach that I'm kind of advancing here, right? That there is a, a core and a periphery or a global north and a global south, whatever language you want to use. Uh, and the, essentially the way we live in the north is predicated on the exploitation of labor and land and seas in the global south. I, I, that's like ground zero for my politics. You build from there, right? And I think it should be for everybody. I would like to ask sort of what is at its core preventing a uh, private market-based uh, form of land ownership, you know, and hypothetically not non-exploitative being compatible with an uh, agroecological form of food production? Nice question. Um, right. This gets into different forms of technology, I think. Agroecology is a kind of technology, right? The, the, uh, so for example, uh, intercropping, it's, it's a agroecological strategy where you uh, put in two crops that are companions and they help each other grow and be more productive. It's a, it's a technology that was advanced by developing those plant species, right, to be productive over thousands of years through peasant communities, indigenous communities, through various farming communities. That's one type of technology. Then there's another technology and, and, and that intercropping method, sorry, tends to be quite labor intensive. So that means that there's people working that field a fair amount of time. Um, then there's another kind of technological solution to feeding people industrialized agriculture. It's labor saving, right? It doesn't use human energy and labor. It uses fossil fuels. It uses pesticides and fertilizers and so on. One of those is more amenable to capital accumulation than the other, right? And it's the industrialized path. That's why the Green Revolution in the 60s was such a, a, a among, apart, apart from being a kind of anti-communist move to suppress uh, liberation struggles and um, movements for land justice in the global south, the Green Revolution was also about pushing the global food system towards uh, something that would create massive profits for capital. Agroecology is less amenable for profits for capital but i say less amenable not incompatible All right that's and that i'm sorry i'm getting into the weeds a little bit but this there is a big move uh in certain parts of uh, agricultural capital towards what gets called regenerative agriculture uh which is not quite in my mind the same as agroecology but it's somewhere similar it borrows some of the principles and ideas of agroecology and it says that this is a green and more sustainable way of growing our food than industrialized farming uh, that it should happen on small scale farming plots uh, that is still more labor intensive. That I think could be a part of a capitalist greenwashed solution to the, the our broken food system, right? So it's not that agroecology is incompatible <laughs> and green regenerative, like regenerative agriculture is incompatible with capitalism. I just think it makes less profit because it's more labor intensive uh, and doesn't need as many off farm fossil fuel, uh, inputs and fuels. Uh, so that's a really good question. I think a lot of people often assume that agroecology is just intrinsically kind of anti-capitalist. And in, in some ways, it's, it's less amenable, but that doesn't convince me that they couldn't just be like, yeah, we're going to appropriate that. Thank you. Yeah, if anything, I think uh, capitalism has shown its ability to appropriate just about everything. Um, yeah. In in one of our kind of earlier discussions, when you and I had a, had a call prior to this, we very quickly touched on a word that is often i guess brings up some some fears in in some people on the left um but that you know we said we would talk about because it's i think it's super interesting and and you know regardless of where it originally comes from i think 
is in the public debate um or at least in the academic debate and it deserves to, to kind of be talked about and i'd really like for you to maybe describe what it means to us and then that word is uh eco-leninism uh-huh. yeah I was wondering where we're going. I was like, it's either degrowth or eco-leninism, right? <laughs> which up until that point, it could have been either. Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Right. This. So this is a term that uh, a couple of us have been chewing on uh, and working over in a different in different contexts. So the names I need to mention are Derek Wall, uh, Andreas Mom, Jody Dean, uh, and I, and, and a few others. Um, so eco-leninism is. Uh, uh, a provocation among other in part right a provocation to make us think about kind of uh, explicitly communist responses to the climate crisis uh, and to, to grab attention in that respect uh, it's a plea to think in a kind of material way uh, about these struggles um, but primarily for me it was a way of bringing in a series of traditions of thought and struggle that were also global south ways of thinking and struggling that were inspired by uh, and I know it's not popular in some parts left, but by Leninist traditions of thought and struggle. So people like Walter Rodney, who I've, I've already mentioned, Amilcar Cabral, who was in Guinea-Bissau, he was an agronomist, was deeply inspired by uh, Leninist and Maoist movements and struggles. Uh, Cuba is another example, like some people don't like these statist solutions, but it's another one that's in this tradition of thought, right? All of these spaces have thought quite deeply about ecology and emancipatory communist struggle. And so for me, this term of uh, climate Leninism or eco-Leninism was trying to say that there are uh, already people in the tradition of thought, a kind of radical communist tradition of thought, that has thought about ecology and emancipatory struggle that puts things like national self-determination, which was a big demand in the global south, onto the agenda and makes it important. The agrarian question itself which I, we've been talking about, is in that tradition of thought, right? And as most of the work has come out of people who are in that tradition. So that's one part of it. The other part that's more controversial, I think, is the idea of putting back on the agenda things like the idea of uh, a party uh, and the idea of seizing the state, wielding the state as an instrument to advance progressive demands, right? And, and that part, I know, <laughs> is touching on something that... Uh, Others think see the state as a kind of an intrinsically colonial agenda and project, right? So there's a debate there. So that was trying to raise that debate. Do we need to think about the state? And I can go through mm -hmm. a, a brief gloss of why we do that, a brief in that, uh, summary of why we raise that question, if it's of any interest. But that's actually yeah. a good starting place. Yeah, yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, it, I mean, it is it is a subject of discussion, I guess, mainly because uh, many have, kind of, I guess, pointed out over the years the intrinsic, I guess, difficulties in seizing the state as a, a territory mm -hmm. for struggle because it's like as you said some some people view it as an inherent um colonial project or, or imperialist project and that the aims to control subdue and, and pacify um and i guess my one of my questions is also you know i personally believe the state the idea of the state is is inherently um tied to capitalism as well and as your project is quite anti-capitalist, how do you view that connection between state and capitalism? And do you and the the abilities we've said of capitalism to um, incorporate just about everything into itself? How do you view uh, an eco-Leninist agenda as being able to subdue capitalism really in the state? 
Right. So, I mean, yeah, okay, great question. So where do I start on this? One, I think we have to recognize if I don't agree with the premise of the state is, well, two things. One, the state has to disappear. Let's start at the beginning, right? The, The key premise. This is a key Leninist premise. You only seize the state because the state exists. It is a space where power is wielded to dominate and oppress and exploit people. The state is integral to the maintenance of a capitalist economy in all kinds of ways. So we need in some way to make the state so it doesn't get in the way of our movements and struggles, right? So I think we all we would all agree on that wherever we stand on the next the next step. Then the next step from a kind of a Leninist, eco-Leninist position is, well, you do that by seizing those parts of the state that are viable and useful to hold off counter-revolutionary forces and to use infrastructures, institutions that are already in place as far as one can against how they have currently been used to transform and transition towards a new system. So the famous examples, and I'm not that convinced they're still relevant for us now, is Lenin speaks about banking, right? And he says, like, the banking system's awful. We hate banks. (laughs) We want to get rid of banks. But also, they're really good accounting systems. They have a technology there of, like, of accounting and distribution that we might be able to use when we're having to transition away from a capitalist economy towards an economy that is um, that is communist-led, right? And once we've moved towards that and we've embedded accounting or distribution or issues around food or resources in communes and Soviets, then we can get rid of banks as they exist. They no longer exist, right? So it's a dialectical move. People like Frederick Jameson talk about dialectical ambivalence. Something that is an oppressive force can be used in the moment of transition against what it's been currently used for um, to emancipate people. Right. That's a very, very broad stroke. That's the kind of gambit and wager. And I fully recognize that there's these ideas that the moment you uh, take control of, if assuming you even can take control of parts of the state, you're instantly kind of corrupted by the state. And we can, you know, and we can, I just, I don't necessarily buy that argument. And part of the reason is because I stand with movements for national self determination and liberation in the global South, many of which have used states pretty successfully to start solving problems of hunger, desperation, limited infrastructure, until imperial powers killed their leaders or killed their movements or you know invaded. Like you can name country after country where this has happened. I do not think it's the state as such as some kind of metaphysical entity that leads to the collapse of these national liberation movements. I think it's imperial aggression, where it doesn't give them the opportunity to transition. Um, so there's a disagreement. <laughs> basically that we we should have yeah i i guess the sorry jamie uh, i <laughs> want to give you time as well to to ask questions but i just i just have too many questions this is a <laughs> super interesting topic for me but yeah sorry we're not making it very easy on you we're asking you a lot of very different and very difficult questions um with no just to be clear for listeners with no preparation of what these questions would be <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, but it's no it's fun it's good it's important the and prompt I, I think is the thing... we are in a cafe the three of us <laughs> and we're just talking <laughs> yeah but um, i think so that the point is that like there are some things that exist in a capitalist society that might be would be advantageous and useful either in a transition but then would need to be gone rid of, or that we might want to continue having in a communist future. So like there is technology and advancements made by capitalism, very or under capitalism, very basic things like healthcare that I want to universalize and have everyone have access to. Then there are some things that should absolutely not exist, right? Uh, and there were, yeah. so it's about 
you i do not hold on to this idea sometimes called um like the feta thesis it's the idea that capitalism develops the productive forces technology up to a certain point and then it can no longer advance any further and so a revolution happens uh, and we just appropriate all of the technologies i think some technology some institutions that exist under capitalism might be useful in a post-capitalist society others emphatically would not be so industrialized agricultural farming that we've spoken about not very very unlikely to be of much use agroecology much more useful the state do not want it get rid of it but we need to get rid of it that's going to be a project right so there's going to be a period in the middle there where you, you're going to need to use these instruments that's kind of the argument yeah yeah and and one of the kind of big critiques i guess that i've read up on um on, around ecolenism has been you know mostly surround uh, surrounds mom uh, as i guess he's yeah. one of the more um media centered voices uh, out there on on this sort of thing but one of the key sort of problems i've seen being raised is that of potential discordances between um anarchists indigenous projects and struggles and eco-leninism um you know some scholars have pointed to it as being antithetical as the they just do not co coexist and we have seen andres malm as well i'm um, just taking him as a slight representative of that um of, of eco-leninism uh kind of critique i guess in some quite harsh words sometimes um these struggles um do you think that they can coexist or work together towards a a future or are you know the critiques kind of correct in saying that they just do not belong together and and they don't work towards the same future okay so this is a, it's, it's a complicated area my my answer to this is that there are always tensions and contradictions between grassroots movements and something like uh, a state-based project of socialist development, right? And that those are intractable and inevitable and perhaps even healthy, right? That these movements need to fuel that transition. And ideally, that project of abolishing the state, this kind of eco-loneliness project, would be animated by the demands of social forces they have to be the majority of the workers need to be on site it's a majority project a minority in that force might might be resistant right and then that's that's okay and good that's what dem democracy is right a, a social democracy would be um but if a if a majority wants something that has to happen that's a very broad strokes but you kind of ask it in a broad strokes way but let's a, a good example might be something like um venezuela right so venezuela is a ongoing, a deeply contradictory and problematic uh, issue, but it's also fundamentally a struggle towards a kind of socialist agenda of transition. Yes, it's heavily reliant on fossil fuels, but one of the exciting things about Venezuela is the establishment of the commune system. There are hundreds of communes in Venezuela that are democratically run. They allocate production and reproduction democratically. They were set up by Chavez. They are, he's, he's like all power to the communes. So it's like, a, you know, a quote of that kind of Leninist all power to the Soviets thing. Some of the communes, people like, um, uh, a lot of various scholars have written about this, but so some of those co communes have become disenchanted or frustrated at various times with the Shivismo project. That should be welcome. That's how the, the project moves forward and advances, right? Through a dialectical negotiation with those forces. So that's my kind of answer in broad strokes. Um, 
And I guess I'd also want to flip it around, but this puts you two on the spot or maybe you on the spot on this. And it's like <laughs> shock horror, but if we're in a cafe, I can do this, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, go it's, for it. It's like, I, yeah, that's fine. But I, I'm just fundamentally not convinced that like localist struggles alone can solve these problems. And I have a bit of hesitancy around this is where I'm going to get at my most controversial. Indigenous struggles are fundamental, primary, important. But I have this hesitancy around a tendency in the global north to somehow treat indigenous people as our saviors. So mm -hmm. oh, uh, I'm not saying these scholars do this, right? But there's this move where it's like, well, 80% of all global biodiversity is protected by indigenous people. Uh, and, and therefore, like, they're our saviors. They're going to exonerate us and do the work for us. I do not, I don't buy into that part of the critique of eco-Leninism. That's like, you know, we need to, yeah. uh, it's more, it's an extremely complicated issue, but I do not think it, uh, negates the project of a, a large scale transition towards a new society that is still industrialized but ideally industrially is democratically managed uh extractivism is reduced as much as possible uh we live in a kind of ecologically benign is the language i like to use so not necessarily it would be good enough for me if we lived in a way that didn't harm the environment we don't have to be regenerating it i would just like to not kill it right like, that's kind of my <laughs> yeah well i can't speak for jamie i can only uh say myself that um i i'm an absolute idiot so i don't really know much <laughs> in general i i'm i don't know much of anything but from my discussions that we've had on the podcast um and i remember a couple of them we did touch on this topic i get the feeling that there that you're right that there is a that indigenous people in general and indigenous knowledge and indigenous practices are put on the sort of pedestal as as the the kind of saving grace for humanity and and i think that as you said rightly they are they should be centered and and should be you know um looked to for wisdom and inspiration and and all sorts of things as should indigenous people and respected as well as you know valid uh yeah. as valid um uh, entities and knowledge etc but i do also find it sometimes a little bit scary how much it's in a way almost commodified as that saving grace and then i i do worry also that um you know they are knowledge and wisdom as others are and and you know, indigenous people are also fallible people and indigenous knowledge is also fallible knowledge as, as all knowledge and people are, they aren't, uh, you know, perfect angelic people coming down from the heavens to save us. They're people just like us <laughs> yeah. who just so we live get into under this... different systems. Yeah, exactly. So I think, it, I mean, at my most spicy take on this, I think it repeats <laughs> a kind of noble savage discourse, right? I think it's a kind of inverse yeah. racism that it's like, they are not intrinsically people. They are an asset that does a good thing mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. us, the people. Mm -hmm. I yeah. find that concerning. And I would yeah. also point just while we're on this to people like Jose Mariotegui, who is a indigenous scholar, a Peruvian scholar and militant who was also inspired by Marxist and Leninist traditions, right? These two are not incompatible because there are people who are indigenous who recognize that there's a way of 
incorporating some of these ideas and crucially adjusting them to their material contexts. So one of Marategi's big points was like, look, Leninism, fine, Russia, whatever, but like that won't work in Peru. It won't work with our indigenous populations. But I'm mm. going to take what's useful in that and I'm going to make it try and make it work in my writing. Like, yeah, and yeah. that's how I imagine eco-Leninism. It's not a dogmatic repeat of Lenin at all. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's a set of questions and problematics that adapt to a material circumstances and that mm -hmm. pay attention to grassroots movements and forces. Um, yeah. and I think in that way, it's much less scary. And we overcome this divide of like statists versus anti-statists or authoritarians against anti-authoritarians, right? Like I, I, I just wonder, I wonder the limits of that sometimes. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I would hate to put uh, indigenous people around the world in under more pressure than they are in under today. Oh my God, already. yeah, me too. Yeah, I, I think yeah. We're, we're definitely on the same page because with this sort of economic block in the global north that has so much capital-related interest in exploited people in the south, they will do whatever they can to adapt the narratives or adapt, mm -hmm. you know, just, you know, the superficial way in which they... They conduct the sort of economic exploitation of people in the South. They'll do whatever they can to maintain that control and those profits, even if, you know, whatever activity people in the global South are doing. And I think it's just pe people in who actually live in the global North, in those, in those richer, um, globally significant, or in, in an exploitative sense, um, countries need to feel that responsibility because they need to provide that immediate civic pressure for change in the countries themselves because otherwise the the state will um it will do whatever it can to keep things going the way they are yeah exactly that is a very fine line to walk also but that we like but as also we were saying between the idolizing and and reifying kind of indigenous people in wisdom and knowledge and dismissing it as unimportant or, or I, yeah. I think it's yeah. like a nuance that needs to be hit you know and and correctly and it's very unfortunate that I think I, I've very very rarely personally seen much discussion on this actually and I, I really wonder from indigenous people what their point of view is on this and, and if they feel that pressure to be perfect in a way to be the solution um, that so many white rich people are looking for <laughs> you know beyond their uh, ayahuasca and, and and coffee or yeah. chocolate uh, uh yeah. rituals well, i mean and that and there goes the other thing right so like my um my phd research was on anti-fracking pipelines in the u.s so i i have an encounter with uh, the onondaga nation and a few other indigenous communities that were struggling in the area i was in but that means i have some knowledge of onondaga rituals not indigenous right not indigenous people in general this this like universalizing they are exactly. thousands of distinct cultures and practices yeah yeah, uh, yeah. I, I just think it's important to remember that and and like some of them yeah anyway it's there are uh, profound lessons to be learned like amazing lessons uh i learned a great deal from working with indigenous communities in the u.s but yeah it's, it's a difficult line yeah and and at the end of the day it's, it's a call to localism and to to recentering where we are and the people who've lived where we are for generations and generations i mean it's all well and good for a belgian like myself to think about indigenous knowledge and indigenous people let's say in south america but you know at the end of the day in belgium the problems are belgian and the yeah. 
you know, in, for example, where I come from, Louvain-la-Neuve, the, the situation, the, the ecological and social um, particularities are particular to that place. And I feel like while indigenous knowledge and, and practices would be interesting and there's definitely a lot to learn from it, I think for me personally, one of the more important parts is that we kind of recenter on where we are and, and relearn a little bit to how to take care of this place that where we are actually rather than look thousands of kilometers at how are they doing things you know it's uh it's, it's of course there's a bit there's things to learn but it's so important the here and now is so important what's really important about this world though is that the the place that you're in is inextricably interconnected to their struggles right so of course for yeah, ex- yeah. You, you know this as much as i do but just to make it explicit for people right if if we're trying to solve problems in the global north like the green transition, uh, which was re- requiring jobs and infrastructural development. And we do that in a way mm-hmm. that enables, for example, uh, the mass rollout of electric vehicles, right? Uh, that has certain impacts and pressures on indigenous communities in Latin America in the lithium tribe. Yeah, that's and a that great makes, point. Right? Yeah. And so you always need to keep that in mind. So like, it's, it, I'm not going to a at global think local, which is the trope, but I kind of am, but I want to say it's more like around rebellion. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, you know, think into be an internationalist, right? So like, don't come up with solutions to the problems in your country that are going to p- put pressures on and exploit people and workers in other countries. That's mm-hmm. a basic mm-hmm. premise, I think, right? Including yeah. indigenous communities. Yeah, something which uh, I guess people like Matt Huber are talking about planetary mm-hmm. proletariat um are kind of missing at the end of the day but uh just to yeah. sorry just a very very quickly comment because i i'd be remiss if i didn't but on the question that you asked us about um doubting i think if if i remember correctly now the efficacy of of those kind of small actions i mm-hmm. guess i do also have my doubts personally um I would love for Jamie to come in on this after as well to to hear from him. But I do have my doubts about about that. Just I think primarily because of scale. I, I think that's the one thing that like scares me is sometimes through whether it be a specific paper or a book or or maybe you know just some kind of discussion. Sometimes you come to the realization of just how big the scale of the crisis and of the planet is. Like it is thousands and thousands of kilometers and literally billions of people and you know if and i know we have this kind of number blindness sometimes and and you know i think a really really great way to to kind of overcome that is also to remember that for example a million seconds ago was two weeks ago a billion seconds ago was 1972 i think so it's an unimaginable unfathomable scale um of of a problem that we're trying to fix and i think that's the big thing that i personally have been trying to come to terms with is i do believe in local solutions and i am scared of you know potentially putting our all of our hopes in the state solution or or trying to seize the state and, and things like this but but at the end of the day i mean i just also have doubts that smaller local actions and organizing as I have personally, at least in my very limited experience, have seen it. I doubt that it can actually bring about the the largeness of action that uh, we desperately need. 
Right. So that leads to unfortunate to kind of those uncomfortable positions. Cause I started in the same place of like yeah. of a kind of horizontalist movement based position, right? And then move towards through raising questions around how do we solve something as big as the climate crisis? So being like, well, okay, we need to act on a global level. We need to act on large scales of intervention that are also receptive to a base and that the base makes most of the decisions in the areas that they live, right? So that's, for me, that's it's the old party commune dialectic, right? That mm -hmm. the, they do local work through communes and the party form or a state, whatever it is, organizes the larger scale transitions right that however you want to think about it we need ways of acting i think fundamentally across scales but uh i i, I yeah i just don't see any other way i don't see how maybe it's my uh, maybe it's my naivety i've tried to read for answers to this but how those local initiatives scale up and as you say make the impacts they need to make at a global level in the time frame that we have i just yeah I wish yeah. that it, would, it would be interesting to bring somebody who is uh, like very, very convinced of the other position. That would be very interesting to to bring. Yeah. Jamie, do you have what do you think? Yeah, well, I guess I guess it's the time limit, isn't it? That that really yeah. puts puts a spanner in the works, because my first instinct was like, well, you know, I'm sure we could we could eventually have, um, you know, cultivate and and build up and develop this democratic infrastructure that connects these local groups to <laughs> national or even global um coordinated initiatives but yeah it is it is just a major question is it, if there's yeah. time to do that because that's just that's a massive endeavor in itself yeah it's so i don't yeah, know the, 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 the counter argument to that I, one thing is important i mean this is all stabbing in the dark and speculation right the the, mm -hmm. the the kind of the the version of seizing the state quote unquote that i imagine is not that it's just like five people wake up one day and seize the state like there would need to be you know like there needs to be majority consent for a for an overthrow of the existing system that's the only way that those things last that takes time and it will involve local community organizing and struggles of course mm -hmm. it will right so these i don't see it as just like it's not this kind of blanky-esque like insurrectionary minority who just suddenly take the state in an undemocratic mm -hmm. way and use it that's that's not my vision so and not, not like time, a vanguard kind of what, what uh, is the or... vanguard from the vanguard for me means the most advanced element of the struggle it is not a select few who put themselves at the lead of the struggle this is rosa luxembourg and lenin's notion of the vanguard right so mm -hmm. for me the vanguard of the environmental movement in the uk is probably still extinction rebellion or just stop oil they are the most advanced organized wing of that movement and i don't mm -hmm. think it's an inappropriate use of the term right okay and you're implying they are like kind of grounded within the within the popular struggle exactly they're grounded in the popular struggle they have advanced the problem the comprehension of how to fight for an environmental and sustainable future the furthest out of any environmental movement in the uk right now for me that makes them the, the advanced wing of the struggle for uh environmental justice in the uk right and so i my term for that would be the vanguard now, I wonder then how like more, I guess, anarchist elements would fit into this, you know, people who do eco sabotage, for example, or and often either do it anonymously or secretly or mm -hmm. just you know receive no attention whatsoever. Um, I I was kind of privy to, to this last year, but more especially with like some of my tutors and things that you know, there's a lot happening around Europe that I had no idea was happening in terms of especially sabotage, especially, you know, struggle in a very material sense um, that personally kind of made me rethink a little bit 
my participation in, in like Extinction Rebellion things because I found it to be a bit more direct, let's say, so direct action. Um, do you see them as also part of this kind of vanguard or or advanced wing people who interesting you know yeah i don't know it's like uh, it's a really interesting question um who, people who puncture puncture four by four tires or or prevent uh you know throw sugar in cement of uh mines and prevent construction or do all these sort of things. power lines yeah, <laughs> yeah well, the, well the power line was incredible right um but i think i mean I, I welcome a diversity of tactics. I don't think people mm -hmm. who are doing those initiatives want to be at a vanguard, right? They're doing a, yeah. <laughs> a different they're doing a different kind of work, right? Whereas Extinction Rebellion, the reason I say it is they actively put themselves out there trying to advance uh, an agenda for social transition and change around environmental issues. And I, I don't agree with all of them <laughs> by any means. Like at least of all the idea that the climate, for example, is a and not a political issue, right? Beyond politics. I think that's absolutely yeah. nonsense. Um <laughs> But in any case, like there's, they are advancing a position publicly, trying to put themselves at the forefront of that that struggle. That's why I use that mm -hmm. term. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. But in the UK, how do you get to this popular struggle when you know the political field as it stands today in 2023 is Rishi Sunak of the Conservative Party, which just approved a hundred plus new oil and gas licenses in the North Sea. Uh, you know, preceded by Boris Johnson and and uh, Liz Truss, good God, and and Theresa May, who each of them have done everything they potentially could, it seems, to to fuck up our our climate and environment even more in in the UK. And then the alternative, as a you know, as it is currently a two party kind of state, or at least that's how I see it in the UK, is Keir Starmer, who <laughs> just seems to right. be like. Tory light or Tory 2.0 I don't know I, I guess I'm trying to think of like yeah as somebody who, who likes to find the steps you know yeah so now we get back to my the, the policy wonk work the PC yeah. public common partnership work we like we honestly get back to this right so I, I don't want to sound create... too hopeless like I I, no, I no, do no, have I, hope I, I just I I think the UK has a lot of potential but it's just it's so frustrating in terms of politics right now Oh, we should be honest. It's like it's a miserable place to be if you're on the left. Right? <laughs> like, it has been for decades. Of course it is. But like, okay. I think you you need to throw your energies into something. Um, my understanding of the work we're doing around public common partnerships, in very broad uh, terms, is about building community power and letting people learn what real democracy is. Right. So we have existing cases that we're working on of public common partnerships where the public are going to democratically decide how to invest in their community. For example. Right, that gives them a sense, uh, it re-educates them in the idea uh, through experience in, in collaborative organization and democratic participation, because we do not live in a democracy of that kind. Ticking a box every six years is not democratic. It's not democratic practice, mm -hmm. right? So we need to learn democracy again. And in the UK, it's frustrating because we're, we're starting at that level. We're starting at like, you know, basic level stuff. Uh, Two things to say about that. One, luckily, it's not up to the UK alone, because if it was, we'd be in big trouble. Uh, and two, it's, I yeah, so the time frame thing we've mentioned earlier, Jamie, right, that, well, we've got to do this in by 2030 or by 2050. And how do we possibly get from where we are? Sorry, doll. How do we possibly get from where we are to where we need to be within that time frame? 
it's really important to remember that history doesn't just go linearly forward. Like massive events happen that dramatically change the the, the, the field of play that we're we're operating in. Uh, this the one that lots of people like to point to is burning down a police precinct after the murder of another black man in the United States, right? Uh, literally burning down a police precinct in Minneapolis. Then when they polled the public saying, was that justified? In the days after burning it down, the polls came back saying, yes, that's fully justified. That's unimaginable before the murder, but it becomes imaginable because of events, right? So I, the little glimmer of hope for me is that there are these moments that we need to prepare ourselves for where new avenues of hope and change can happen and we need to be in the best possible position as movements to wield those and use those so think about it people have spoken about a shock doctrine of the left for naomi klein the shock doctrine is like the capital seizes on these moments of crisis and uses them to accumulate more capital we need as far as we can to be in a position where when one of these crises hits we're ready to step into that bridge and say well here's an alternative that's viable and working ideally already working in certain contexts which is why we try and build these spaces of democratic participation in our work. Are you sort of, I, I guess, obviously there's kind of different levels to view this, you know, it, you can almost think of it as a curve and then the quotient of the curve and then the quotient of that, you know, the, the sorry, the rate of change and then the rate and the rate of change. There are like initiatives which are quite new in the UK, you know, so quite novel initiatives like things like Citizens UK, these sorts of new civil society institutions which provide ways channels for and sort of encourage citizens to get involved in politics do you think not politics generally like actual democratic uh decision making and like campaigning on specific issues including the climate crisis do you i mean that do you think these sorts of institutions provide sort of optimism in a kind of change in the rate of change of uh, of democratic culture no okay <laughs> but here's the reason why right so there's i think there's a really important difference between demanding that the existing state and institutions do something for us and creating power collective power collective capacity to run the things that we need to run right does, does, does that make sense as a distinction so the public common partnership work like there is an asset that says say it's an energy company you could you could democratically own an energy company and use the surplus proceeds from that to invest in either building more, uh, whatever it is you want in your community or helping other communities establish democratic control of assets and things that we need to survive. Through that process, you are directly democratically intervening to make your life better. Uh, you're not asking somebody else to do that work, uh, right? So like, just like campaigning for my local MP to do something, it's, it's a lost cause, I think. But like getting people to understand their collective capacity to transform their surroundings in whatever way that is where I think that's much more hopeful so maybe they are doing that work I need to look into them but I think there's a fundamental difference um which is also one of my hesitancies around some of the extinction rebellion stuff right because it's like it wants the states to declare it's a state of emergency well they've done that it wants a citizens assembly around climate UK's already had one of those uh, and it wants to tell the truth about climate change. And well, we now recognize we're in a climate emergency, right? The demands have kind of been met. Uh, the demands, just demanding to the state to do those things in a way, that's one. But now what? Like, and I know Extinction Rebellion has answers to this. But I think part of the problem isn't just the demands, but it's the form of making a demand itself, rather than thinking about how to integrate into communities and help communities empower themselves collectively to live in a different, more collective way. So that's the challenge that I think we face. A reference for that, if people are interested in that kind of stuff, because 
I'm probably not explaining it very well, but I think uh, Istvan Mezeros, who's a Hungarian Marxist scholar, he has like a, a 900 page book called Beyond Capital. But if you skip to the end, the Ooh. final chapter is on like negation isn't enough. It's not enough to just sabotage. It's important work, but it's not enough. And it's not enough to just ask the existing powers to do something for you. We need to create conditions where we can reproduce ourselves collectively in the interstices or the cracks of capitalism, if you like, and force open new ways of being together collectively. So I'm interested in that work now, mm -hmm. in the here and now, as we head towards wherever we're going to go. Because my sense is, even if we don't win a revolution, <laughs> we're going to be in a much better position to deal with what's coming if we are collectively looking after each other and have those social bonds and ties that that kind of work builds up, right? Um, it's so minor and so insufficient for the severity of the crisis we face uh, that in one way it's very dispiriting, but in another way, I think it's the only way we can do anything in the UK right now is to get to that space of collectively, democratically deciding how to do things in our community. Yeah, I uh, I am conscious of the time. I don't want to take too much of yours, especially because we started this call a little bit late in the day. and. Everybody's tired. It's Friday. We're going to head into the weekend. Um, but I would be so angry if, at myself if I did not bring in the famous banana discourse oh, <laughs> straight out of Twitter. Um, yeah. You know, I, I mean, okay, it doesn't have to be reduced to... Um, to online silliness but i think there is a really really important larger point there but i think it's quite obviously it was a lot of fun for everybody while it lasted and in our, in our tiny little niche of the internet and uh you know if you're listening and you're not uh sure what i'm referring to with banana discourse uh just to very very quickly kind of summarize it um at least from my vantage point as, as i saw it happen it seems to me that it's kind of started with Matt Huber, who is a, a quite open uh, eco-modernist critiquing Monthly Review, which is a, a socialist uh, journal uh, for their degrowth-centered um, publication for, I think, the month of July and August. And he wrote quite an extensive critique of uh, at least, the, f I think, the preface or the opening chapter by yeah. John Bellamy Foster, right? Yep. Yeah. And in there, obviously, in the comments, <laughs> things started getting heated. I mean, they received hundreds, if not potentially thousands of replies. Uh, mostly, I personally, from what I've seen, people pointing out Matt's um, horrid logic. Uh, and one of those people, I think, was it Malcolm Harris? I, I don't know. Some, yeah. some different people mentioned the idea that bananas would not be fully available in the way that we know it and experience it today in a kind of more fair socio-ecological future and that somehow that thing just ticked some people the wrong way <laughs> and they decided to call us uh what was it lee phillips decided to call us uh banana abolitionists uh that we were tyrants who wanted to take people's treats away and i'm sorry if they're being big babies but yes maybe those treats wouldn't exist and 
I read your really, really great thread, which I really recommend everybody go and and, and read up on it. Um, Kai here wrote a really nice thread about this whole discourse. Um, can you maybe like tell us a little bit about how you saw this discourse and online and yeah. and what your take was on it? Yeah. So I think I saw Malcolm's response uh, and was like, "This is going to be a problem." Like. <laughs> I know immediately that this is I know it's going to cause an issue um and it's because there are certain commodities in the global economy that are uh sites of that condense so many contradictions in the global system right um whether that's exploitation of the global south by the global north whether that's the commodity form itself right the banana was just charged it was ready to do this um and one of the what yeah so Oh my God, one just side comment and I'll get into my thread. But what was so interesting for me about it was that basically a lot of people got very hysterical about bananas being taken away, right? And I'm partly trained in political theory and in psychoanalytic theory in particular. And there's a phrase in psychoanalytic theory, it's this thing called the theft of enjoyment. It's the idea that like someone threatens to take away something and that thing is fundamental to the way that you exist and enjoy your life, right? And when that thing is going to be taken away, uh, it's traumatic. Uh, so you often hear about this about environmentalists. Environmentalists are coming for our SUVs is a big thing by Republicans, right? They're going to steal our enjoyment, our way of living. And so in a way, this panic around bananas disappearing spoke to a, a kind of reliance on exploiting land and labor in the global south for me immediately. That's where I've got to. It's like, so this person, so yeah. for example, one person who said like they want to be able to have a banana because how this is the most extreme one I can go to, but let's go with it's Twitter. So why not go to the extreme? Like she's like, oh how am I ever or someone's like, I don't know how I'm going to feed my child if I can't mash up bananas. So like, this is insane, right? But it, oh, it's also got a re but it has a reason to it, which is that they are fundamentally accustomed to and integrated into a global economy that is predicated on uh, a certain political ecology, to use an important term, right? So my thread was just trying to point that out. And I, I felt like it was quite a basic thing to point out, which was that uh, the establishment of bananas as a mass commodity in the global north is was part of a project that was um, from the 1950s onwards by the United Fruits Company and by the United States, intervening militarily very often to organize coups in Latin America to reorient landscapes in the global in Latin America mm. towards monocultural banana production for consumption in the global north. Right. So step one is you only have bananas in general because of a, a violent imperial regime of capital accumulation on a global scale. But it gets more complicated than that because. Uh, the banana, as we understand it, is just one variety of banana among hundreds. It's a Cavendish banana. Uh, previously, in, in decades ago, that was not the main kind of variety of banana you could eat and consume in the global north. But it became the one that we used because the, the preferred, more tasty version uh, became prone to a fungus. And that fungus just spread and made it so that you couldn't import this banana variety anymore. So there's a whole complicated contradictory process around around bananas the the final point of the i'm glossing it too quickly here but the, my final point was just that like bananas are really monotonous they're really boring like it's like if you want a soft tasty fruit like we we only eat in capitalism like your choice is a banana but in a order or others but you know like that's the one people go to maybe 
in a post-capitalist society, like we could have an abundance of different varieties of plantains and bananas, right? That because the only reason the Cavendish exists is because of this imperial regime, because it's easy to transport compared to other types of bananas. It doesn't perish as quickly as other more tasty types of bananas. All of these considerations go into which produce is going to be imported to the global north and into America. But the UK, the US, we can produce loads of really wonderful <laughs> fruits and vegetables ourselves. Uh, we don't need to rely on the import of these. And we certainly don't need to press into service labor in the global south to manufacture bananas for us, which is a notoriously dangerous job. So people die very often in banana plantations. The pesticides are genuinely lethal, not really? just for, for wildlife, but also for human life. Right. Okay. So this just it's such an exploitative system from beginning to end. It's, it provides a really monotonous, boring product when we could have much more abundance and diversity. So I, I just used it as a way to say, like, why are you so libidinally attached to capitalism? Is the way I'm going to put this. Why are you so hung <laughs> up on having capitalism? Oh. And if, if you imagine your image of socialism, your image of the world after capitalism is just the world as it exists now, the things I, produce, I eat now, but like we own it. That's not how it's going to be, right? It's, we need we need to imagine a more diverse experience. A, a, a human flourishing is the phrase I like to use. Um, mm. That yeah, that's that's my attempt at making that into a serious point. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, no, I think uh, <laughs> I think you've very well managed that. And and during the first whole bit of of uh, your explanation, I was just just thinking this makes so much sense about who Lee Phillips is. <laughs> and uh i mean i hate to to bring up his name because i i have come to the realization now that he's uh, i i genuinely believe he doesn't he's not a good faith actor but um right so but he does is, the key, i yeah. think the key thing i guess on this i think matthew huber is uh a serious academic and scholar who i disagree with he's a sparring partner mm -hmm, he does mm -hmm. some good work work i've lifeblood is a is an important book his first book his phd book right I think he's an important and serious interlocutor. I do not personally think that the same applies to Lee Phillips. Yeah. yeah. So I just, I, yeah. But but I think what's important is to note is that Lee Phillips still represents a huge portion of America that is so incredibly addicted to consumer, hyper-consumer culture and capitalist culture. Um, and as you said, uh, I, what was the term they used at the beginning from the psychoanalytic, the shock? I think you're... depth of enjoyment yeah yeah I I think that describes it perfectly I mean I I've read a bit of his book austerity ecology um the climate collapse something something and yeah. I just remember it starting with a story of him saying that uh he remembers Black Friday and how it was the only day of the year that he could buy things properly or like expensive things because they weren't as expensive and that now right. you know uh, they want we want to take this away from him or something and i right. just there's some sort of anecdote maybe i'm doing i'm not doing it justice but some anecdote about wanting to buy things not having been able to and now yeah. being able to partake and why are you trying to take this away from so, me? So and... that's this. That's a serious. There's a serious point to this, right? Which is the reason yeah. why I use the theft of enjoyment terminology. Is like I think Lee Phillips and Matt Huber. They they talk about degrowth, for example, being a politics of less, and that workers want more. Mm -hmm. And I I don't think that's intrinsically wrong, right? It's degrowth isn't a politics of less, but that we're not. But it, you will not win people by giving them less. I think that's right. That they've got a point. The problem is that they then project 
capitalist commodity practices and consumption practices into a post-capitalist future. So they mm. can't, I would say it's an inability to imagine that we might want and be able to have better things that aren't organized around capitalist consumer, like, like Black Friday, right? So having more <laughs> free time with my friends, with more diverse foods or technologies, right? Like most, like whatever it is, it it will not look like a capitalist consumer habit. But for Phillips in particular, he seems incapable of imagining that we might be able to have something better, right? Than this, uh, better than Black Friday, uh, right? Which is just uh, what could be story. better? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, uh, yeah. No, I, I do not uh, believe in Black Fridayism. Sorry, Lee. I've really enjoyed this discussion because it's like it's not just about you know like the theory around um, I guess like like eco socialism and things like that, but we like, we went in so much detail in like how political change could undergo and like all the challenges surrounding that. So yeah, yeah, like I yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> of course, I mean, like it's it's important to say, like I I don't have the answers, but doing this kind of work or talking with you guys and anyone, we all got we've come to the answers collectively, right? So it's mm-hmm. it's really important to me as well to be able to have these opportunities to go back and forth with people and arrive at collective responses, and yeah, so it's been great. Oh yeah, podcasts are part of the solution. <laughs> we're <laughs> not, we're not just toxic leeches on humanity let's go (laughs) (laughs) yeah no but really it's it's been wonderful and i wanted to cut it off here to also keep this episode not too long for people because i I know it can scare off some people if if it's uh, too long but um for sure i think we we got to bring you back at some point um and i think maybe having like a panel discussion or something or Mm, like a larger group a more diverse group would be really interesting if if you're up for it i would i would love that i think yeah that'd be yeah that'd be really good um awesome. i haven't done a pa- panel format before but i just think it's so much better because precisely because you arrive at answers and questions through dialogue right mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. the trick is yeah, just not great. to let it get into infighting uh and, and toxic i think but you know jamie and i, I mean, it's different in person good. though is it or rather in in voice isn't it i think twitter just sort of make kind of lets people be a lot more abusive yeah I think, right? Yeah, yeah it depends who you have. In, I mean, it really depends who's in there as well, right? But like, I mean, I met Matt Huber for a beer at Historical Materialism and we got on pretty well, right? He mm. agreed to stuff that he won't agree to in print. <laughs> it might be the beer, it might okay. be the beer talking, but, wow. I was pretty, but having, I think, yeah, dialogue and in person, it really does make a big difference. Cool. Yeah, no, no, it's it's true. Um, let's try and set that up. I mean, we've been talking about this for a while now that we've interviewed around 60 something people we have been talking about kind of bringing some people back or doing some sort of rising with the tide um i don't know there's even been ideas of like a rising with the tide sort of mini conference kind of online or something like this to to bring some of these people back i can't make any promises at the moment we have our hands full with keeping the podcast and alive and, yep. and, yeah 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 no no i mean an online conference not in person okay okay no way could we afford <laughs> in person yeah. dude i'm an intern man i don't i don't earn any money i lose money um but yeah. uh yeah no i just mean more like just random panel discussions uh that we would be setting up and and monitoring and things like this um should be really fun but right now yeah we have our hands full we have a series on tunisian crises uh that we've been working a lot on so that you know we'll feature dozens of people actually uh super interesting stuff but maybe after that who knows yeah but for now fantastic 
Kai, thank you so so much for coming thank on the you, show. Kai. Yeah, of course. Yeah, no, it's it's really been a pleasure, and and I listened to a couple of your appearances on other podcasts to kind of also prepare for this, and and I really want to shout out actually landscapes. I thought that was a really really great podcast episode they did with you. Um, so very quick little shout out to one of our <laughs> uh, one of our um, competitors, <laughs> but yeah. no no uh, a comrade if anything. And yeah, do you want to maybe tell people where they can find you and your work? Oh God, where can you? I mean, Twitter for now, X, whatever <laughs> it's called, uh, at mm. Kai Heron, I think it's just my name. Um, yeah, you can find my work online if you search my name, it's a fairly rare name, so it should come up quite quickly. Yeah, get in touch yeah. if you're interested in any of it, I'm always up to talk to people. Cool, awesome. Thank you for your work and, and for coming. No worries, thank you. <laughs>